Hello and welcome to Making of a Historian, the podcast chronicling one grad student's quest to study for his comprehensive exams. And uh, if my voice sounds kind of uncertain, kind of like I don't know what I'm doing, I just got back from holiday, literally like last night, uh, and I'm still kind of piecing things together after, you know, the trials of international travel. Um, my brain still doesn't know whether I'm on Hanoi time, um, in which case I think it would be like, you know, in the afternoon and the sun would be setting, or in Berkeley time when it's 10 a.m. on a Monday morning and you really, really, really need to work. Uh, the holiday was nice. Thanks for asking. Um, I didn't read a ton of books. I read a couple books in the airplane and carried around a book in my backpack thinking that I would, you know, cram some thoughts into my head while I was waiting for a bus or something. But for a week or for a couple days, I felt not like a grad student studying for his QAs, which was nice. Although now I feel really guilty. Now, as I'm sitting around trying to remember what I do in the morning, I'm also doing a little bit of mental arithmetic in my head, thinking, okay, I have about six weeks until my exams. What can I do? How many books can I get through? What needs to come off the lists? Uh, how much can I do today? It feels kind of like I've jumped off of the treadmill for a little bit, taken a rest, taken a drink of water, seen some sights, and then now I just jump back on the treadmill and I have to go back at full speed right immediately. An interesting thing that I recognized over my trip was that uh, I was starting to see things differently. And I think it's a result of all the reading I've been doing for the comprehensive exams. I think that, you know, by shoving all these books into my head day after day, I actually learned something. Um, and I think that I can describe it as the world felt a lot more familiar. Uh, I was going to a new country. I was in Vietnam. Uh, it's quite different. You know, there's scooters in the streets, which are, you know, these old French colonial, you know, alleyways with, you know, giant buildings and stuff like that. But it felt familiar. I could see analogous situations in the things that I was seeing in Hanoi and in the countryside with stuff that I'd read about. I was seeing patterns everywhere. You know, I was seeing 18th century and 19th century England in 21st century Hanoi. And that worries me a little. I mean, right now, contemporary history emphasizes the contingent, the unique, uh, the local. We're not meant to see uh, 18th century England and 21st century rural Vietnam. But I did. I did see these constant themes coming up again and again as I was traveling through uh, the country uh, from stuff that I read. And I want to just tell you a couple of the things that I saw that reminded me of stuff that we talked about in our podcast. And I want to tell you mostly about the stuff that I experienced when I went to uh, mountainous, you know, rural Vietnam. Um, this city called Sapa, which is uh, nestled in the northern mountains. Uh, it was founded by uh, the colonialists who needed a spa town to get away from all of the mosquito-borne illnesses and to, you know, sober up for a little bit. Um, but now it's a huge tourist destination. Um, the city of Sapa is uh, kind of feels like one of those ski towns that you go to where every other shop 
is serving you fondue or something to warm you up. Everything there is massage parlors and restaurants and bars and uh, shops selling North Face jackets. Uh, but around Sapa, there is this really vibrant rural community of a bunch of interconnected villages, uh, all nestled in these little terraced rice fields. Uh, and the people there are not Vietnamese uh, ethnically, uh, they're ethnic minorities like the Hmong and the Dao. Um, but I saw a lot of stuff in these hill villages that reminded me of stuff that I read about. One of the clearest similarities was demography. So people in this area get married really early and they have lots of kids. And that means that there are just a lot more young people around. So as you were walking around these villages, you would see tons of children. There were just children everywhere. People wouldn't exactly know uh, whose kid was what or they wouldn't tell us, but there would just be, you know, six, seven, eight-year-olds everywhere. People carrying babies, kids in the restaurants and in the homes. Uh, and that reminded me, of course, of uh, Victorian England, where there was a much higher birth rate and people had kids younger than they do now. And the fact there that there was just a lot more kids, there was a higher proportion of the population who were younger. Um, the second thing is, you know, maybe a little bit more controversial, maybe a little bit uh, less certain. But when I went to these hill villages, I saw a bunch of the things that people talk about when they talk about modernization. Now, why this is controversial is that during the 50s, one of the big dominant things in academia was the idea of modernization. The idea was that modern social science could look at the history of industrialization and nationalism and be able to pick out basically a roadmap that would then be followed by underdeveloped countries. So by looking at the uh, history of Britain, we would be able to find stuff that you could tell to the Vietnamese government that would help them, you know, become more modern, to become more developed, to get to the place that we want to get to, whatever on earth that is. Now, that got controversial very quickly because all of the schemes that came out of this modernization project, or many of the schemes, failed dramatically. And now we recognize that there's not one route to modernity, that there might not even be this thing called modernity, that it might not even be desirable if it's there. And so all of this modernization perspective has become kind of careworn and not as sexy as it once was. Which is why I found it surprising that I could see a bunch of the stuff that the modernization hypotheses would tell me to expect when I would go to a modernizing village. So one of the, the interesting things that I saw was the Industrious Revolution. Now remember from a couple episodes back, the Industrious Revolution is this idea that the economic growth of Europe, the Great Divergence, was kickstarted not by machinery, not by inventions, but instead by new ways of producing things in larger markets. The idea is because markets get bigger and people have access to new kinds of desirable consumer goods like coffee, tea, and porcelain, they start to work longer and harder. And that this is what spurs economic growth in the first place, not, you know, the invention of the, you know, the, the spinning jenny or whatever. Now, I saw this in Sapa. Uh, in Sapa, uh, people are working day in and day out. 
Uh, I saw everybody at work when I was walking around. People, of course, you know, working the rice fields and farming and all that. That's kind of normal because it was coming up to planting season. But what I also saw was women working everywhere. In the homes, women were cooking and also making handicrafts like uh, textiles and metalwork. Uh, but more than that, you would see women in the streets, in the uh, uh, pathways, waiting for tourists. Uh, women were taking tourists like me um, up through the mountain pathways and on hikes. And also women were walking around with giant, you know, wicker baskets on their back, selling things to tourists. And I think that this is one of those industrious revolution moments. People are working all the time, not because there is some sort of new labor-saving device out there, but instead because they're now linked up to a monetary economy where they can buy new kinds of awesome things. And you see this whenever you went into a house, because the houses were filled with a lot of the consumer goods that people all over the world like. They were filled with labor-saving devices like washing machines and oil stoves and hot water heaters, but also with stuff that just makes things nicer. They were filled with nice uh, 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 pottery and posters and computers and speakers and all of this kind of material accumulation that we take for granted. Now, what was also interesting to me about this industrious revolution was that it was gendered female. A lot of the work that men did uh, was still, you know, thought of as muscular, as brave. Men would work out in the farms and, you know, lift things and help with, you know, water buffalo and whatever. But a lot of the tourist-facing work, most of the tourist-facing work, was done by women. I saw actually only a single male guide in my two days out in the mountains. And this is because, you know, the things that uh, are gendered female, sympathy, care, uh, going to the market, were the things that were uh, uh, benefited by modern economic development. The tourist trade didn't, doesn't need muscle. The tourist trade needs friendly faces that are willing to talk to you. And when I saw this, I thought, okay, there's also going to be a crisis of masculinity around because women are the people who are getting money off of this new kind of modern uh, economy. Women are the people who are tied in with the tourist trade. Women are the people who are interfacing with foreigners and getting all of this new cash and probably responsible for buying all the new awesome stuff that people have in houses. There is going to be a crisis of masculinity in the same way that we saw a crisis of masculinity in 19th century British culture with the advent of the factory. And I don't want to speak for the people that I saw out there. I don't want to, you know, claim that I know what's going on. But from what I saw, I think that there was a crisis of masculinity going on in these hill villages. Uh, women can make more regular wages than men, and it changes the power dynamic within families and changes the cultural dynamic of what is valuable. Um, the women that I talked to all complained that the, peop the men in their lives would just get drunk all the time, that they would work and the men would drink. Uh, my guide said that she had recently left her husband because uh, she talked too much and he drank too much. And, I mean, really, it was striking. As we were going down the roads in the middle of the afternoon, you would just see them completely filled with women working. And the men that you would see would be drunk, completely hammered in the middle of the day. 
And it made me think that maybe we should be looking for these crises of masculinity uh, throughout history, that maybe it's something that is a pattern, that when the economy changes or when the status of particular uh, activities change, that it might lead to problems with what men and women should do with gender trouble, right? And it made me think of modern America today, because one of the reads that I have on the problems in politics and culture that's happening is that there's a crisis of work in uh, poorer America, that people can no longer get not just jobs, but good jobs, jobs with value, jobs that have some sort of cultural cachet. You know, people might work in service sector jobs, but we are missing the kind of jobs that give pride to men. Now, I don't think that this is inherent at all. I don't think that there is a particular set of work that is masculine or feminine. But I think that we're lacking the cultural scripts that allow men in poorer areas of America to feel like they're doing something good with their lives. And so part of the crisis of America right now is that men who in these poor areas who are chronically unemployed, you know, instead of working or participating in society, go out and smoke pot and take opium and play video games and watch Netflix, things with satisfaction, things that they can still feel good about. And I think that I might have seen something similar in uh, the Hills of Sapa, that because women were now tied in with the international economy and men were not, the men were, you know, lacking in uh, honorable work. And as I say this, I really know that everything that's coming out of my mouth is uh, tenuous, that it's, you know, a, a, an op-ed straight out of asshole monthly. I don't know what I'm talking about. I'm talking out of turn. I'm extrapolating. Um, and I kind of expect right now Southeast Asian historians to pop up right behind my shoulder as I'm talking and lecture me about everything that I'm getting wrong. But I, one of the important things that I want to end with is not that anything that I have told you guys about today is true. It's that I felt like I was seeing the world in a new way. The comprehensive exams, this hideous amount of reading that I've been doing, talking to you guys every day, I think it's worked or it's working. And uh, that's exciting to me. Thanks very much for listening. I have to thank Jonathan Lear for the music and Duncan Barton for the image. If you like the show, rate and review us on iTunes. Check out the website at historian.live and drop me a line somehow. Get in contact. Tell me that you're out there. Uh, we will be back either tonight or tomorrow uh, with stuff that I don't know what it is yet. And I'm going to now hit the books and try not to freak out. Thanks very much for listening.